welcome to Your Killer Life, where together we tackle the reality of surviving a killer diagnosis like cancer, and I help guide you through creating your killer life. I am your host, Tammy Grable Woodford, and in this podcast, we aren't leaving anything out as my guests and I share deeply personal insights and experiences as we talk about trauma, loss, treatment options, caregiving, side effects, money. Hey, we open it all up. In fact, we are even going into the forbidden zone to talk about sex, relationships, and mental health. Remember, the conversations you hear on the show are based on unique experiences and varying diagnoses, and we all had our own medical teams. We are not giving medical advice. So if you hear something inspiring, please talk with your providers. All right. Are you ready? I know I am. So let's get busy and start building your killer life. Hello, and welcome back to Your Killer Life. I am so excited because we have an amazing guest today. So we're going to start talking about reconstruction. And this is one of the reconstruction options. Our topic today is one of the reconstruction options that I don't think it's enough attention. So we are going to be talking with Kim Bowles of Not Putting on a Shirt, N-P-A-O-S. I love it. So welcome, Kim. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about your story. Tell us about your diagnosis and when you were diagnosed and kind of um, what, what, uh, well, just tell us about you. Yeah, sure. So I was 35 and I had a colicky baby and a three-year-old dynamo toddler son. And when I was diagnosed, found a very large lump and it was stage three HER2 positive breast cancer. So for folks that don't know what that means, that means you get an extra year of infusion therapy at least. So I, I went through chemo before surgery. Sorry, it's been a little while since I've talked about the cancer thing. I'm about three years out now and I'm doing okay. I have no evidence of disease, which is great. Purely a matter of luck, by the way. So yeah, I went through, you know, five months of neoadjuvant chemo. I was bedridden. My mom moved in with us to take care of the kids while I was incapacitated. And uh, then, you know, sur- the surgery decision that we all have to face, I decided to go flat. I decided that I had missed enough of my kids' lives, you know, from chemo. And I just wanted to get back to taking care of my kids and living a living a normal life as best I could. I think we all crave normalcy after we've been diagnosed. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so yeah. much so. Try- and trying to find it is not necessarily the easiest path. No, and there's always a new normal, right? And my goal was just to just to get back there as soon as I could because it's it felt like so long. And chemo did ultimately kill the cancer because when I had the mastectomy, there was, you know, no cancer, no invasive cancer remaining. So that was really lucky. That is great news. And so you had neoadjuvant chemo. And for those that are listening, that's just, that's before the mastectomies. And then you were HER2 positive. What type of cancer did you have? Uh, just invasive ductal, the standard. Yeah, it was in the nodes. So large tumor in the nodes of stage 3A. And that's why I was so thankful when sur- the pathology came back from surgery that it was all the invasive cancer was gone because that actually bumps up your survival numbers quite a bit. So I'm grateful every day for that. Yeah. For modern medicine, saving my bacon. <laughs> and 
I just want to point out to those that are watching and listening that I'm 3B. You, I should say, was 3B was my diagnosis. You, 3A. And I always like to kind of point to the faces and, and say, you know, there is health, there is life, there is vitality, there is living and being alive in the diagnosis. And goodness, Kim, you are amazing in all that you are doing. So let's talk a little bit about reconstruction. And I'm talking with a surgeon that I'm going to have on to kind of go over the different types. And just like with cancer, I had no idea there were so many types of cancer. And I certainly had no idea there were so many different types of reconstruction options after the fact. And I certainly did not understand until I went through it myself, the um, complexity of reconstruction. One of those things, you know, speaking of normal, trying to get back to whatever your normal is at the end of this, there's the the deep, the tram, the implant, the under, even with implants, there's under the muscle, over the muscle. And then one that does not get talked about enough and is a actual reconstruction option is a flat closure but you've been working really hard and we now have this new thing called an aesthetic flat closure. And can you educate us all a little bit about kind of what was and what is and the importance of that terminology and where we are headed with that? Oh, absolutely. So 40 years ago, we didn't have breast reconstruction. If you had a mastectomy, that was it. I mean... There was no widely available breast reconstruction whatsoever. You were losing your breasts and that was it. You had to go flat. There was no other option. As as science progressed and surgical techniques progressed, we got implant reconstruction was the first type of breast reconstruction to come on the scene. You know, silicone implants under the skin to produce a breast mound. And then we got um, microsurgery. So transplanting tissue from another part of your body and connecting the vasculature so that the tissue would survive and create a breast mound that way from your own tissue. And there's combinations of that. There's a couple of newer techniques. I don't know if you've heard of the Goldilocks mastectomy. So for women with very large breasts, especially large pendulous breasts where there's lots of extra skin, you can, at the time of the mastectomy, if you, you take out the breast tissue, so you can imagine like scooping out, like with an ice cream scoop, you just scoop that out. And what do you have left over? Well, you still have some fat and some skin there, it normally would be discarded, but sometimes, and not all patients are candidates for every procedure, but sometimes you can rearrange that tissue with a skilled surgeon to produce like a smaller breast mount. So that's a newer option that doesn't require like harvesting from another part of your body and doesn't require an implant. And again, you can combine it. Like if you want a larger breast mount, you can probably combine that with an implant, maybe at a later date, I'm not sure. But so there are quite a few options for breast mount reconstruction that happened over the last, you know, 30 years, 40 years. And as those techniques came on the scene, going flat started to be relegated to a second class status because initially it was, you had no choice. And to access breast reconstruction, you had to have a bunch of money. Insurance didn't cover it. So going flat was what what you were forced to accept if you couldn't afford breast reconstruction. And that started to become the narrative Then in 1998, we had federal legislation that required insurance to cover breast reconstruction, and that started to change a little bit. So breast reconstruction rates skyrocketed. I'm trying to remember the numbers. They're escaping me right now. But still, the narrative that going flat was something that no woman would choose if she had another option. 
that was still like that persisted. And I don't want to disparage breast reconstruction. Breast reconstruction is an important part of healing for so many women. It's a very personal decision. There's a lot of factors that go into it. For me, the risks and the costs of breast reconstruction, particularly in terms of like the healing period, you know, multiple surgeries over a period of one to two years, in order to to get a breast mount, it just wasn't that important to me to make that worth it. So I decided to go flat. Now I'm starting to lose my train of thought here. Chemo brain. I think we're all familiar with chemo brain. If you're unlucky enough to have to go through chemo. <laughs> so, so breast reconstruction, it's a new thing. It's a new thing in human history. It's a new thing in medical history. And we don't realize that, you know, most of us that are diagnosed today, we don't remember a time when there wasn't breast reconstruction or at least, yeah. So um, that's the history. And I think over time, going flat lost its sort of, I don't know if surgeons lost their, their, oh God, it's so, it's hard to explain. We just don't have a lot of data on it is the problem right now. So women going flat started to get sort of uh, not great quality closures. So I think there was a prevailing attitude amongst a smaller subset of surgeons that they don't need to, you know, do additional work to try to get a nice flat contour. They can just, you know, sort of throw it together and then the plastic surgeon can deal with it later. So a lot of women nowadays are not getting great quality closures that they can live with. That's interesting because I, I know I'm in survivor groups now and I'm sure you are too out on Facebook and hearing from women and, and, you know, sharing women, sharing photos and being left with dog ears. I'll, I'll probably ask you to talk about that, but being left with dog ears or being left with a a clump of tissue, I've posted my photos and I forget which episode it is. So I'll make sure and put that in the show notes, but I posted my post mastectomy uh, pictures and There was nothing that really prepared me for what that would look like. And I feel like, and of course, I mean, you don't know, right? Like my, my general surgeon and I had multiple consults with everything, but that was my surgeon. I only went through (laughs) once on the mastectomy side and he did not leave dog ears. I had a clump of wadded up tissue in the concave chest cavities that were left, which I was on. I didn't expect that. I mean, why would I know that I would have concave divots in my chest afterward? But he also did spare as much skin as possible, knowing because he and I had that conversation up front that I would be seeking reconstruction. And so I did have a good experience with my surgeon who asked me, will you be seeking reconstruction? What type of reconstruction? He helped me get a consult with a plastic surgeon prior to my mastectomy so he could make the best decisions. His incision lines were beautiful, but it still was traumatizing to me to see, you know, what was soft and feminine and a part of my identity. It's not vanity, my identity to have that taken away and to see what I was left with. And even in that, when it came to reconstruction, a lot of folks don't know there's damage that happens. I had the inframammary fold on one side. No idea what that was until I needed to know (laughs) was damaged. Um, but anyway, it is a traumatic experience. And so talking with, if you have women who have not had their mastectomies yet and who are, are weighing, you know, do I want reconstruction or not? 
what are some of the questions that you would recommend that they ask their general surgeon since that's going to be their entry point? And I always recommend see a, a plastic beforehand if you can, so that you you know, like you just have that information. And then what are dog ears and why is that an important thing? And is that addressed as part of the aesthetic flat closure? Yeah. So your first, so two questions. Your first question was, what should you, what are your considerations when you're considering whether to do breast reconstruction or not? And the second one is, well, let's get to the second one in a minute. I definitely recommend speaking with a plastic surgeon so that you know all of your options because every woman's medical situation is different. I'm not a medical professional. So, you know, I can't give medical advice. I can tell you from a patient's perspective, it's the breast reconstruction decision really beyond the the medical constraints, whether you're a candidate for different things or not, or whether you can access a microsurgeon for a flap surgery. Not everyone can access that, you know, especially in rural areas, but beyond the medical constraints, it's a matter of your personal values and priorities. Is it important to you? to maintain what I call, some people call a breasted appearance. Is it important for you to present an image to the world and to yourself in the mirror of having breast mounds? Is that important to you? And you'd be surprised, like, because what you've never, until you're facing mastectomy, you've never really been confronted with this. It's never been an option. You've never thought about it. So you need to take the time, as much time as you can, to really think about what's important to you. Because breast reconstruction is not without risk and it's not without cost. So you're, you're weighing the risks and costs of pursuing that with the benefit that it might give you. And I think the most important thing is to seek out women who've been through it, who've been through the decision-making process and, and crowdsource. And that's why I think as much as I sort of, Facebook is a love it or hate it kind of a thing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great place. It's a great platform for finding a group of like-minded women who can sort of tell you how they experienced that process, like how they made the decision, what went into it, and what their experience was after the fact. That's the that's the biggest thing I would recommend, honestly, beyond just seeing, make sure you see a plastic surgeon who can tell you what your options are medically. Talking to other women, talking to other survivors. Um, you can join. There's flat groups on Facebook. There's a deep flap. Um, group run by Terry Kuti, which is she's a patient advocate that I'm, I'm acquaintances with. Um, there's there's a couple flat groups, um, Flat and Fabulous, Fabulously Flat, Flatties Unite. Uh, there's a whole bunch. Just search Facebook for Flat, and you'll find it, and you'll just get an outpouring of support for for that option. And I have found most women are very supportive of all options. So even if you're in a flat group, you'll you'll get support as you make your decision. And the other thing I would say is try to think, you know, think about the future and, you know, what might your regrets be? I mean, we can't, we can't know the future and we can't know how we're going to react, but just thinking about what does reconstruction involve and what are the, what's the likely outcome? And after I make that investment, how am I going to feel about it years down the line? So it's just different for everyone. It's, you know, it's so personal. And you're going to get judgment from some people. You're going to get some people in your life are going to be like, yes. what's wrong with you? Why aren't you getting your boob job? 
I guarantee you're going to hear this ignorance from some people. Or if you decide to get breast reconstruction, why would you put your body through that? I mean, it doesn't matter what you decide. You're always going to be wrong because you're a woman making decisions about your body. So (laughs) seek out a plastic surgeon. Seek out other women. Think about the risks and benefits in your specific case. Think about in the future, what are you going to look back and have regrets? And screw anybody that doesn't support you. I like that last one a lot. (laughs) And it's true. (laughs) People love nothing more than to pass judgment on women's bodies. It's, it's absolutely incredible to me. And it really is what's important. And, you know, and even when it comes down to, to nipple reconstruction, which I battled with even that, like, you know, you're right. At no point in your life, are you sitting around thinking, gosh, what is it going to be like if I, you know, until you're faced with it, remove my breasts, would I leave them off? Would I (laughs) You just, you know, you don't go through that. And so with reconstruction, and we'll get into that because I'll, I'll share my story in, in additional episodes. You're right. It is multiple surgeries and other considerations. Implants yeah. are not forever. They have to be replaced. <laughs> and there are even oftentimes multiple surgeries to get the result that you want. There when- are. And I want to say, I want to interject and say, I have a criticism of the way that breast reconstruction is sometimes, oftentimes presented by the reconstructive surgeon. The gallery of images that they will show you are not necessarily the average results that you can expect. They're the best possible results. Right. That's fine as long as you understand that that's what they're showing you. You know, if you're pay- if you're expecting a perfect result that you're unlikely to actually achieve, you might be disappointed. You know, and that's not you don't want that. You want a realistic expectation of what can you expect. And I think most plastic surgeons, you know, will talk about that, but but they won't show you necessarily pictures of what you can probably expect. So just keeping in mind a realistic expectation. I mean, we we all wouldn't it be great if we had a no risk surgery that would give us, you know, perfect breast mounds back that didn't have any risks. And that's just not the reality. No, if it, you know, you're right. If you, if you could have a reconstruction to restore you to yourself the way that you were beforehand, wow, wouldn't that be something, but that is not the case. And although I'm happy now, it has taken me multiple surgeries to get there. And I had a great surgeon who said to me, and I loved how she set the expectation because she said, our goal is to get you as close to normal or what you would consider your normal with clothes on. Yeah. Yep. Clothes on. And that's a really important distinction. And that's when that hit me pretty hard that I was not going to have the boob job boobs at the end of this. And it's uh, quite a process just to get the the results that I have with, you know, and, and I actually think about how lucky I am in a lot of ways because of the surgeons and the team that I had. And, and not everybody has that same attention to detail or care, I guess, or skill, right? I mean, frankly, well, it's a skill. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And there's so many factors that go into play, that come into play, excuse me, for, that determine your, your final aesthetic result some of which you have control over and most of which you have zero control over and disparities in quality of care come into play here also. Yes. 
I mean, women who are in a position of privilege, financial and social privilege, you know, obviously have a much easier time shopping around, going to a specialist. That's not the case for most women. Most women in this country, who you land on first is who you get. And not to disparage surgeons, but aesthetic surgery is not easy. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's not easy. There's so many things that so many years of training that go into even just standard plastic surgery training and then microsurgical training beyond that. I mean, you're really talking about a sub sub specialty of surgery. So you you have to be your own advocate. You know, you have to, to the extent that you can, you have to look at what your options are and just not accept no for an answer. And no one's going to advocate for you except for you. So you have to take ownership over it. And and that can be challenging. It can, especially when you're being told that, no, that that looks great. You look good and you don't agree with that. And, and I think that that creates opportunity for some frustration and possibly second opinions, because if you are not, I, I guess what I would recommend with women is to, to really not settle, to not feel like you're forced to settle. If you can, and you have to seek additional, you know, providers yeah. and, and opinions, Absolutely. then, then do Absolutely. it. And there, your, your surgeon is not going to set you up a second opinion. That's you, you do that. And this is another utility of the Facebook support groups. They can recommend surgeons in your area. I I have a surgeon's director on my website, but I mean, that's not the only resource. You can seek those out from from individual women who've had good experiences. Absolutely. So let's talk about dog ears because a lot of people, people who are listening, who are caregivers, people who are just starting their journey with breast cancer, I really need a better word than journey, starting their hike. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A hike up the mountain with the mountain lion chasing you. Right. That one. (laughs) I'm really trying to do better with my language around this, right? Like it's a struggle. It is. I mean, let's stop, let's stop putting a bow on it. (laughs) So as we start that process, what is a dog ear? And is that something that is addressed as part of the aesthetic black closure? Okay. Great question. So if you picture yourself naked with your boobs out, (laughs) The breast tissue is like around 10, this is a major oversimplification, but just for visualization purposes, the breast tissue is like, picture it as like a tennis ball, like in the middle of the breast. You don't, what's coming off of your, what's, what's protruding off of your chest is not just a round tennis ball. It's surrounded by stuff that fills in the contour, right? That's the fatty tissue and the skin that's sort of ancillary to the breast tissue. If you just remove the breast tissue, which is what a mastectomy technically is, and then you close the wound, what do you have left? Do you have a smooth contour? No. You have lumps and bumps and excess fat that just is still sitting there. That's a dog ear. The fat and extra stuff under the arm, I'm like reaching over here. You can't even see I'm off camera. Under your arm, where the, the wraparound tissue that goes from the nipple and then the contour curves around under towards your back, under your arm, that is the area where a dog ear, you know, I, this, 
technically a dog ear is a, is a different kind of discontinuity in the contour, but what people normally talk about as a dog ear, they're talking about excess underarm tissue. So if the mastectomy is done with no additional contouring work, you will get a lump of fat under your arm that's quite uncomfortable. So that's why an aesthetic flat closure is so important to ask for by name, because you don't just want a mastectomy with no reconstruction. What you want is a comfortable result that you can live with. And that involves smoothing out of the extra tissue um, so that you have a smooth, comfortable contour that you can, you know, that you can, you can move your arm around. You don't, you're not rubbing into anything. You don't have folds and lumps and, you know, it's an aesthetic. There's additional work, additional surgical work, you know, after they remove the breast tissue. Additional work required most of the time, particularly if you have larger breasts, additional work required to make a smooth contour that's comfortable for you. And that's an aesthetic flat closure. And until early 2020, we did not have a name for that. So women would tell their doctors, I want to go flat. I want to be flat like a 10-year-old boy. I want, there was no agreed upon specific definition of what exactly they're, you're talking about when you you say you want to go flat, but now the National Cancer Institute has defined the term aesthetic flat closure as basically uh, chest wall reconstruction. So rebuilding a smooth, flat chest wall contour after the breasts are removed. And it's important to ask for it by name so that your surgeon knows exactly what you want. That is so important because I will tell you, I had no idea what until I was in breast cancer groups, how painful, how uncomfortable that that was even left there because it just seems like I can't imagine. I mean, as it was finding clothes and adjusting to my new normal, I and mean, even with reconstruction going through that process, I can't tell you how many tears I cried just trying to find a shirt that looked good and not having that. And I was large breasted um, prior to cancer and um, I still had extra tissue. I didn't have a, it wasn't, it was not the dog ear, but what happened was I had extra space. And so I would lay on my back and my implants would fall under my armpits because I had extra tissue there. And my surgeon, um, the second time she went in and cleaned that up and had to basically extend my incision line, which I didn't care. <laughs> well, I another thing in the incision line, in order to get a good aesthetic flat closure, a lot of times you do have to extend the incision line. It's just, you can't avoid it sometimes. And I think most patients don't mind the longer scar in order to get a smooth contour. But I'm telling you, in surgical training, particularly plastic surgery training, it is it is a foundational principle. It's a, you know, a, <laughs> a religious tenet that you, you get the smallest scar possible. Yes. Because what they're trying to do is restore your original appearance and a scar is a defect in their mind. And I mean, it is a defect, but at the cost of producing a, a comfortable contour, of course, most patients are okay with that. It's a, it's a miscommunication. You know what I mean? It's a common yeah. miscommunication. So you do have to be clear with your surgeon, particularly if you want to go flat, extend that damn incision, however far you need to get it under the arm. I want a smooth, flat contour. 
And I will tell you the extension, especially the incision from my plastic surgeon, because she was so careful in her process and she's a plastic surgeon that has faded. So the incisions that I had that she extended are almost not even visible at this point. And of course, everybody's skin is different and everybody, right? Everybody is different. And so my results are no guarantees to what someone else's results are going to be. But I know that I can say without question, I did not mind having a, seriously, I already had a probably nine or 10 inch scar on my chest. Another two inches was like, <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's, and this is why it's so important to have these specific conversations with your surgeon. You don't want things going unsaid that are going to lead to an outcome that is not optimal for you. And it's tough to know as a patient, we're just thrown into this world and what are we supposed to be experts on freaking surgical technique? It's ridiculous, but that's, that's where we are right now. And it's on us to make sure that we are clear with our surgeons. And most surgeons are, are good about this too, but it's, I think we're evolving in our language and in, in our, our level of expectation for our aesthetic result is going up a little bit over time. And I think that's a good thing, but it's, it's all about, clear communication and, and shared expectations because your surgeon cannot perform a miracle. It's never going to be perfect, but we want to get as close as we can, right? As close as we can reasonably given the cost of additional surgery. So it's just, it's a negotiation and it's really important to be clear. And that's why this new term aesthetic black closure to my mind is, is a game changer because Without clear language, how can you possibly have a shared understanding of what you want? That is so true. And it's amazing the excitement, you know, again, because I chose the the path of reconstruction that I chose. And I'm saying path of reconstruction that I chose because I want to make it very clear. Aesthetic flat closure is a path to reconstruction. It is your one of your choices. You're for reconstructing, reconstructing your chest wall. You're not reconstructing a breast mound. You're reconstructing your chest wall contour. Like a almost not it's not a male chest contour, it's a it's a chest contour without breasts. So we all remember growing up when we were 10 or nine or eight or whatever, some of us were unlucky enough to develop early, right? Um, we didn't start out with breasts. And that's not to say breasts aren't important, you know, but we individually we decide how important our breasts are to us and how important it is to maintain that appearance. It's so individual. And we all started out with the breastless contour. And if you have to remove your breasts and you don't want breast reconstruction, you should be able to get that breastless contour back, at least approaching it. Absolutely. And I think that with providers, I've always, the way I've phrased it is because no provider is intentionally not wanting to give you the best possible result. I think that what happens is the well, providers... <laughs> There's a very few surgeons who will intentionally override your wish to go flat. That happened to me, but almost all of them are ethical. Oh, wow. Yeah. We're going to come back to that. I'm actually okay. making a note and we're coming back to that because, <laughs> this is because what started my activism that, okay, we're definitely coming back to that. So what I was going to say is that I think there's a lot of assumed knowledge with a provider and what I mean by that and assumed information. And what I mean by that is they're having the conversations multiple times a day. 
And for you, it might be the first time you're having this conversation. So they have a bunch of assumed information in their head because it is routine to them. And unless you ask the specific questions or dig a little deeper or ask for clarification, you're, you're likely not going to get it. Right. So just even me thinking back, if I had just asked the question of, what will I look like post-op with my general surgeon? I would have been mentally prepared for what looked like construction staples. I would have been mentally prepared for not having sensation in my chest. I would have been mentally prepared for what the drains looked like, right? But I didn't ask that question. And I call it the cancer train, which moves so darn fast when you... Oh my gosh, when you're diagnosed, it is just, you are on that thing and it is moving unless you say, I need to breathe and I need to pause this for a second because I need to ask some questions and get some information. Hey, Tammy here, and I am so excited to talk about our sponsor for this episode, Riverdance Soapworks. When I was first diagnosed with breast cancer, I immediately started paying extra attention to what I ate and the products I used. That's when I discovered Deb and her team of artisans at Riverdance Soapworks, where they handcraft luxurious, natural, and good-for-the-body products like soaps, deodorants, and body butters, products that we use in our house every day. Griff loves the cedar whiskey soap, and my favorite, well, I love the kawaii ginger. These soaps are handcrafted, hydrating, and luxurious enough to make you want to wash those hands for 20 seconds or more. Visit RiverdanceSoapWorks.com to check out their many amazing products and mention my name, Tammy, with a purchase of $25 or more, and you'll receive a free trial-size hand sanitizer while supplies last. So don't delay and visit RiverdanceSoapWorks.com today. Let's loop back to why you are an advocate and what happened and your story there, because I think that that is really important and it's not as uncommon as people might think, because I still see it in groups today where it's an assumption and a surgeon is making a decision that you don't know what you want and that you are going to want reconstruction later and they feel like it is best to leave you with the tissue that you may not want so that you have that decision later. Yeah. Um, so this happened to me. So you'll have to excuse if I get upset. Um, it's upsetting when this happens to you. It's, uh, it's traumatic and it's not something you'll, you ever forget or get over. I mean, yeah. So where do I start? So if you can picture me, a 35-year-old mother of two very small children, bald from chemo, like swollen, puffed up from the steroids. I looked terrible. I felt terrible. My mind was still intact. I was still me. I didn't look like me, but I was still me. Competent adult making decisions about my body and my future. I, I... I went to Cleveland Clinic, which is a number two hospital in the nation, intentionally, because I thought I would get the best care there. Uh, I'm still happy with my surgical oncologist. She didn't do anything wrong. She did a great job. When I told her I wanted to go flat and I wanted a smooth, flat chest, remember, there was no aesthetic flat closure term at this point. So I didn't have access to clear language. But she was she was pretty clear about it. And she, she immediately said, oh, let's bring on a plastic surgeon for the closure to get you a nice result at the first surgery. So we did. And 
I had two consults with that plastic surgeon and I was very clear that I wanted to go flat. And the whole reason he was on the team was to do a nice flat closure. And then surgery day came and I was being wheeled and I was in the OR. I had the IV in my arm and both surgeons, it was a co-surgery, which means they're both there from the beginning, but the plastic surgeon just waits, waits until the mastectomy is done. Anyway, he was sitting, standing there and I heard him like musing to himself. And he said, I'll just leave a little extra in case you change your mind. But keep in mind, that is not what we discussed. That is not what we agreed. I was on the operating table and I heard him say that. And I thought, to myself, oh shit, because I had seen in the Facebook groups, I had seen this happen to women, but I'd always assumed, oh, maybe they just weren't clear with their surgeon. It never occurred to me that it was an intentional, intentional overriding of your decision. And I heard him say that, and it was like the worst thinking feeling you've ever felt. I knew I couldn't protect myself. I was like 20 seconds away from going under. <laughs> And I said, no, make it flat. And then I made some stupid joke about don't get cancer, guys, it sucks. And then I conked out. And when I woke up, he had left pockets for implants on my chest, his words, in case you change your mind. And what that meant for me was I can't be done with surgery. I'm going to have to get this fixed. I was, remember, I was still facing radiation. I was young. I had a severe uh, advanced cancer. I had the whole kitchen sink treatment to look forward to. And I had a baby and a toddler at home. I had made my decision to be done with surgery. And he had just snatched that away from me because he thought he knew better than I did my own mind. It sounds like, like a horror show, like... Why would any surgeon ever do even consider doing that to a patient? I think, well, I could theorize about it, but the effect on me was I had to have another surgery. And I mean, he did something in my body while I was unconscious that I directly, it was directly against my consent. It wasn't even like I didn't consent. I directly said no. And he still did it while I was anesthetized. This, it is egregiously unprofessional. And I don't think there's any surgeon or any professional or even any, any person that would argue that that's okay to do. And the only reason that it happened was unclear language means no accountability. If you do an aesthetic flat closure and you remove all that ancillary tissue, yeah, it makes implant reconstruction a little harder if the patient changes their mind. Yes, it does. Okay, but does that justify overriding the patient's consent? Never, never, ever. There is never an excuse to do that. The only time a patient should wake up and, and have an unexpected result that she didn't consent to is in a medical emergency during the surgery. Right. right. And there's no one on earth that's going to argue otherwise. And But individual surgeons, a very few of them that would do this, what I call intentional flat denial, there's no accountability. And <laughs> I mean, it's just, a, it's a, frankly, an example of sexism in medicine. It sexism is. Sexism in medicine playing out at the expense of the patient. 
And again, most surgeons would never do this. Okay. But I was unlucky enough to land on one that did, despite me being very clear, bringing photos of what I wanted to look like, bringing a witness, having smooth, flat result in my medical record. He still felt entitled to intentionally override my consent. So that happens to, according to my research that I did and presented at San Antonio uh, in 2019, it happens to one in 20 women who choose to go flat. And again, this is from a pilot study. This is not like a large longitudinal study. So take it with a grain of salt. One in 20 women that we surveyed were intentionally denied a flat result by a surgeon that thought they'd changed their mind about implants. So this, in terms of the scope of the problem, it's not just me. And over time, as I tried to seek redress from the hospital, um, I mean, I never hired a lawyer. I never, all I did was ask the hospital, look, acknowledge what happened, hold the surgeon accountable, however you see fit. I didn't even ask for any specific outcome. And, you know, change your protocol so this doesn't happen to other patients. You're a Cleveland right. Freak Clinic. You're telling me you can't prevent intentional misconduct? I'm sorry. No, I don't accept that. So, spoiler alert, they never addressed it. <laughs> they strung me along. But, I mean, my experience trying to seek redress and, and talking to other women about how it had happened to them. Like, were they clear with their surgeon? Yeah, most of them were pretty damn clear. And it still happened to them. So, it's a systemic problem. It's a bad apple scenario is what you're talking about. Um, well, and it's a, I, I will use some stronger language and say it's a violation. It is a violation it is. of trust. It is. it is a violation of your wish. It is a violation of your communication and expectation. It is a violation of their position. Yeah. It's absolutely a violation. Yeah. It is. It's a betrayal trauma. So there's a whole field of study in institutional betrayal trauma, medical battery. It has a lot of parallels to obstetric violence where, I mean, any of us that have had birthed children of our own, we've experienced this, you know, dynamic where we're helpless and our consent, we we may or may not be listened to and we don't really have control over it. And it's almost, it's similar to that except you're anesthetized. So you have zero control. Zero. (laughs) Yeah. And I will tell you, I think that this is one simple policy that, that every hospital can make. Once you put that IV in and you have started to give me the drip line, you don't get to ask me or make like, there's, there's no decision making. No, and he wasn't trying to do it. I don't even understand why he said it. Like, if why are you telling me that you're going to do something I didn't agree to? Why are you even saying that? I think he thought I was already going under. And he was so used to just doing and saying whatever the hell he wants because he's God in the operating room. I mean, thank God for surgeons. Okay, Thank God for their ability to distance themselves from our bodies so they can cut into us and remove the cancer that is going to otherwise kill us. Like, thank God for these people. I never want to disparage the surgical profession as a whole. I have a lot of respect for those folks and they've saved so many of us. Um, But that same mindset that allows them to cut into your body can be taken to an extreme where you cross the line. And I think in the moment, those surgeons make that decision. And I think even the ones that intentionally deny us, like my surgeon did, 
I think if you go back and talk to them, I don't think they would be able to justify it. If they actually had to go through the process, like you can't justify that. That is a, like you said, it's a violation of your bodily autonomy. It's a violation of your Hippocratic oath. And if it's, if it's as bad as one in 20, that's pretty damn bad. That's pretty damn bad. Let's say it's a hundred times less than that. It's one in 2000. That's still too many. You should never have your, your wishes intentionally overridden by your surgeon. I mean, that's ridiculous. So, but if there's no mechanism for accountability, you can't have a system set up where there's no mechanism for accountability and expect that there's not going to be problems like that. So the aesthetic foot closure being defined by the National Cancer Institute, now when women ask for that, there is no question what they expect the surgeon to do. There's no, I'm going to leave a little extra. No, because the definition of aesthetic foot closure precludes that completely. So if you ask for an aesthetic thought closure and it's in your medical record, I expect this to prevent intentional flat denial altogether because no surgeon is going to risk a malpractice lawsuit for that. It's accountability. And I think that is such a huge point because you're right before, no matter what you did to communicate that not having the medical terminology and that medical standard is harmful because you're not able to protect yourself further from having these um, miscommunications or overrides. And I think that this is also one of those areas that because mental health is disconnected from physical health, at least here in the United States, can only speak for our country and obviously not with every medical provider. So it's a dangerous generalization. But in general, mental health being disconnected from physical health, not acknowledging the mental health side of you waking up having something other than what you agreed to, which is why I use the word violation and I'm not going to church it up because that is a huge violation of trust to do no harm to, it is a huge violation. Yeah, it's terrible. I'm shaking even thinking about it. Um, it causes PTSD directly. It causes, even if you don't get a diagnosis of PTSD, I mean, it's a battery. It's a, it's an intimate battery and I don't want to overstate it, but it is, it is trauma that is 100% avoidable. So it's everyone's responsibility. Everyone that's involved in patient care. It's, it's all of our responsibility to stand up and speak out against this type of misconduct because it harms patients. It's you. Can you imagine being going through breast cancer treatment and facing the amputation of your breasts, you finally, and you know this, you finally made peace with the fact that you were going to lose your breasts and you finally made peace with your reconstructive choice after, in my case, months and months of deliberation. These were the breasts that fed both of my children. I had a a one-year-old at home that was still breastfeeding when I was diagnosed. This was This was a hard process for me, and it is for us all to come to terms with what we're going to lose and how we're going to come out of it. And to wake up and have that just be just stolen from you is beyond, I, I have no words that can really express how horrifying that was to wake up to. And I am a young, otherwise healthy, privileged person with access to great quality medical care, otherwise mental health care, physical health care. I have a supportive family. 
the harm that it did to me is nothing compared to the harm that it could do to a woman that has no other surgical options. What if she has diabetes and she's not a candidate for additional surgery, but she has to live with that for her whole life? I knew more than one woman who had metastatic cancer who was denied a flat result and couldn't get more surgery. And she lived with that result to the day she died. Think of one woman in particular, an older woman. There's no person on earth that's good, that can argue that that's acceptable. It's, it's, it's tragic. And it's who has the power here? Until we had the term aesthetic flat closure, it, those individual surgeons held all the power on this. And that's not okay. So now patients can advocate for their specific choice to reconstruct their chest wall after the mastectomy rather than reconstructing a breast. And there's a mechanism for accountability. So it is, it is a huge step forward for patients. And we're not there yet. You know, we're not at the point where, ever, you know, what we want, what I want as an advocate is I want plastic surgeons to discuss aesthetic flat closure as a reconstructive option the same way they, re they discuss implant reconstruction and flat reconstruction. This is an affirmative aesthetic choice that you're making. This is your body. You, this is the, this is the body that you're going to live the rest of your life in. And, you know, we deserve, we deserve to have our choice reflected back to us when we look in the mirror to the greatest extent possible. So what I want is I want parity. I want, I want aesthetic flat closure to be in every professional forum discussed with the same level of respect and consideration that breast mount reconstruction gets. And I don't think it's asking too much. And I don't think it's going to be that difficult to make these changes. Like, for example, there's an accreditation body that, that gives, um, that certifies breast centers. They have to follow protocols, meet certain standards. One of the protocols was the reconstructive consult. And it lists one, two, three, what the reconstructive options are that the plastic surgeon needs to cover. You can just add flat closure, add a set of flat closure right there at the bottom. It's very easy, simple amendment. Same thing with the legislative aspect of this. So to make sure that insurance covers these services. You need to bring on a plastic surgeon? There shouldn't be any question about whether that should be covered by insurance. Just like there's never a question about breast reconstruction being covered by insurance. You don't get those, those reimbursement requests denied. That should be the same thing for aesthetic flat closure. And to get the legislation amended, all we have to do is change the term breast reconstruction to breast and chest wall reconstruction. Done. It's like eight words, but eight words that can make a world of difference for patients going flat, which by the way, is the vast majority of patients over the age of 60 go flat is four out of five. For younger women, it's less. Okay. But you're still talking about thousands of women every year going flat. So as bad as what happened to me is, and I guess I am still suffering from the traumatic effects of it, and I probably will for the rest of my life, just like one in 20 women who go flat are still suffering from that. Um, as bad as that was, at least we have a plan for how to fix this problem, and the plan is moving forward. And it's moving forward because we have a winning argument. Mm -hmm. No one can argue against. No. It's an artifact of history. This is not like evil surgeons deciding to leave you with terrible results. I mean, yeah, okay, my surgeon, yes. Okay, but that's unusual. <laughs> Most women that get poor results 
it's just not an effective history. You know, we started out with mastectomy surgery. There was no breast reconstruction. Everybody went flat. There was no disparagement of going flat as a, as a socket clause option. It's just, it's the way we evolved as medical science evolved and we can just tweak it and fix it. I will say that, and I did an episode on, on being a good self-advocate and there's still, in your case is the perfect, your situation's the perfect example of how you can do everything right in your communications and still have um, hiccups. And it's interesting to me because the last surgery I had, I always ask for a surgery marker and I always write on my arm, no IV, no BP on the side that I had sentinel nodes taken out of. And I had someone say to me when I requested the marker, you don't need to do that. The doctor knows. And so I could have, right, allowed someone's opinion to dissuade me from my stinking little surgical marker, but instead said, she's busy. And if there's an emergency, she'll be busier. I'd like the marker. And that's just that subtle, super subtle, like how your little decisions to advocate for yourself can be overridden throughout the process. And so I recommend excellent note keeping, which you did, communication, which you did, photos, use my chart to protect yourself, send photo of what you want with, right? Like use the tools that are available because unfortunately, once that drip starts and you are, and trust me, like I have a weird request. Every time I've been under, I always ask my plastic surgeon, please do not strap my arms down until I'm completely out because I don't want to wake up with my last thought being feeling trapped, right? And silly as that is, but whatever it is that helps you and your mental health through this process helps you advocate for yourself and will help you protect yourself should something unexpected or unwanted happen is so critical. Critical. And listen to your intuition. Mm. If you're, we have data now that shows that um, pushback about your decision to go flat from your from your provider is associated with the higher prevalence of flat denial. So you're into it, even, even if we didn't have that data, you're, you always listen to your intuition, right? As women, we're yes. taught, don't make a big deal out of it, or you're just being you're just being paranoid. No, no. I'm teaching my children to always, always listen to their intuition about their own bodily integrity and their own safety. Always. And as mothers, I don't know if you have kids, but no. as a mother, I am not only responsible for my own safety now, I'm responsible for the safety of two other souls. And I take that responsibility very seriously. And one of the best things you can do to protect your children and to protect yourself is to listen to your intuition, honor your intuition about your own safety. Who pays the price if you ignore that little voice in your head? You will. Yes. And that it's not worth it. Just do what you have to do um, to protect yourself. And you don't need, it doesn't need to be a situation of fear. Just listen to your intuition. I mean, your request to not tie your arms down until after you're out, they can handle that. That's a minor inconvenience versus the cost to you, which is significant. 
the cost to your mental health in that case. Exactly. And your mental health matters. You matter. Your aesthetic results matter. Your mental health matters. You matter. And you matter enough to inconvenience someone in a minor way. (laughs) Even if those people are, you know, surgical professionals that you are worried about offending or inconveniencing. No. You are your own advocate. Good for you. Good for you for doing that. You have the right to ask. And I think that too often as women, we we there is a conditioning of society where we give away our agency and we step back. And you have every right, every right to ask, request, advocate, and get the results that you that you expect to the degree that they're capable of delivering them. And you might be surprised by your provider's response. Might It most likely will be positive. I've heard many, many surgeons say, good for you for, you know, asking that for that specific thing. And good, you know, if, if your provider's response to you making a minor request is, is one of anger or something, that's a big red flag, right? Huge. You might want to reconsider someone that won't accommodate you in a minor way that's important to you. You might want to reconsider using that surgeon because they have total authority over what happens to your body while you're anesthetized. And again, most providers are completely ethical. It's just you, you have the control here to decide who you allow to operate on you. Exactly. And it's not not an emergency situation. (laughs) No. And to your point, there's also just getting over the bias that is there that if you were to ask that surgeon that did what he did and left you with the closure that he left, he would probably say that, well, no, that was the right thing to do. So there is a real disconnect between you having that autonomy and being able to make that decision for yourself and a medical provider saying, well, but my preferences and I see better results when and making that decision for you, which is absolutely not okay. The positive of your story though, is not putting on a shirt and how you have been able to channel this into something that goes beyond making a difference for you and your story, but making a difference. I'm getting chills talking about it, making a difference for so many women. And you are so busy with, you've got so much advocacy and legislative work that you do. And tell us about not putting on a shirt as an organization. Tell us, and probably would take us a full hour to go over everything you've got out here. But (laughs) tell us about what you're working on and some big wins. And truthfully, Kim, in an odd way, I would have to say that the universe is thankful that um, you were able to take this experience and turn it into something so much bigger, a movement. Yeah. You know, I just before I start talking about the current work, I spent a year at Cleveland Clinic working behind the scenes before I started protesting. I spent a year trying to get them to acknowledge what happened and protect patients. I wasn't asking that much, but during that year, the stonewalling and the gaslighting and the, you know, ultimately they sent me a short email that said, we can't meet your expectations at this time. Like this is Cleveland Clinic. If, if Cleveland Clinic can't solve this problem, we have a systemic problem 
on our hands that's going to require. And that's that's how I started. That's how I started the organization was realizing through that process of trying and failing to get redress. Realizing that this is a much bigger problem than just me or just one hospital or just one provider. There's an attitude among many medical professionals that going flat is not, it doesn't deserve any kind of consideration at all. You know, you're going to change your mind. You don't care how you look. There's, there's cultural attitudes that come into play. There's um, the reimbursement piece is a big piece. It's a systemic problem. That's going to require a systemic solution. And that is why we need, I needed to organize and I needed to, you know, produce a strategic plan that would address all these barriers, barriers, things that are contributing to the problem. So anyway, I, I failed to get redressed from the hospital. <laughs> Through no, I tried, trust me, I tried for a year. And on my last day there, I, I finally had had enough and I, I couldn't stand walking through those hallways anymore, knowing that I might run into that guy that did that to me. I mean, I, I was like worried about what I would do, <laughs> you know, like I'm a big person. I, anyway, it, I didn't want to deal with it anymore. I just had enough. I just wanted to cut ties with the Cleveland Clinic, get the hell out of Dodge. And on my last day there, I was like, I couldn't, it was like my, I was convicted. Like my conscience wouldn't leave me alone because if I just left and just dropped it, it would happen to another woman. Right. Nothing stopping it. And this wasn't just about me. And so I just like decided to just, I just, I, I was trying to think of what can I do to get the, force them to pay attention. So that was when I had my topless sit in. I basically like walked to the CEO's office turn on Facebook live, whipped off my shirt <laughs> because I'm sorry, but my chest at that point, you it's incontrovertible what he did. Incontrovertible. You can't look at it and say, oh, that's okay. Or, oh, that's not extra skin. No, it's like evidence right there in front of your face. So I did a topless sit-in and they called the cops and dragged me out. Oh, yep. And then I came back and started protesting on the sidewalk because my first amendment rights protect me on the sidewalk, maybe not inside the yeah. clinic, that's private property, but on the sidewalk, I can do what I want. <laughs> so that's how it started. You know, I was just mad and I just was trying to force them to pay attention and a couple of media outlets picked it up. And then Catherine Guthrie's, um, she, Catherine Guthrie, a women's health journalist wrote an article for Cosmopolitan magazine about my story and a couple of other women who had had poor aesthetic results. That got published. We went on the Today Show. It was like a media storm, you know, right then. And during that time, I was developing tools and resources for women to try to empower individual patients to protect their choice. So we had a, a list of flat-friendly surgeons that I uploaded into an online directory. Um, you know, patient-recommended surgeons that are going to respect your choice, period. Um, and that's everything is on my website right now at notputtingonashirt.org. We did a couple of brochures that people can print out that have questions for your surgeon, that have pictures of what you want and what you don't want. You also have out here, because I have your website up and we'll link to it in the show notes and at the top of the notes even, you have your strategic plan out here. You have your current projects. 
Yeah, we have a lot going on now. You do. <laughs> the tools and-, and resources are one, uh, one way to approach it. The other way to approach it is from the top down. So the legislation and the different institutional protocols that need to be amended. And the NCI definition was a, a really big one. We're going to use that to, you know, take the next steps. I love it. And you do have out here, contact your legislators. And so with the advocacy work, do you then have tools that folks can use to have those conversations with their individual legislators? Yeah, there's a template for, um, there's the whole rationale for amending the WHCRA, which is the federal legislation. There's a template for the, for how to talk to your legislators on that page. There's a tool that you can use to find your legislators, your state legislators and your federal legislators. So there's a lot you can do. You can contact your legislators. You can recommend your surgeon if you had a great surgeon. You can share your story because it's so important to tell our story so providers can see the impact that the quality of your closure has and the respect for your choice has on your life. Like it's about dignity. It's not about vanity. It's about dignity. And seeing your choice reflected back to you in your new body. It's so critically important. You can share your surgeon. You can share your story. You can volunteer. There's a whole bunch of database management and outreach and phone calls and all sorts of stuff that people can do. Um, We have a volunteer page on the website. You know, you can order brochures. Uh, I ship brochures all the time. (laughs) I have some to mail out right now sitting on my desk. You can give these brochures, flat as beautiful brochures to your providers to help spread the word. Um, I mean, we're in a pandemic right now, so we're a little constrained, but you can contact your legislators. What else can you do? You can donate. You can always donate. You know, we um, we were going to go to the American Society of Breast Surgeons annual meeting to talk to providers directly. We were going to have an exhibitors table. Um, that meeting got canceled, so we rolled it over to next year. But, you know, some of the work that we do, like printing and going to conferences, requires funds. So if you donate, if you can't volunteer, or if you can't think of another way that you would want to do that, donation is a, is, is critical. Absolutely critical. Yeah. I'm not used to, (laughs) not used to talking about the, the whole like donation and (laughs) that stuff. I mean, and you know, a lot of the work that I was doing, I mean, obviously I'm not getting paid for it. A lot of it's done online, but the stuff that costs money costs a lot of money. Right. I was an executive director in nonprofit world for a long time. And that oh. is just something you get used to, right? Is that, that asking oh, for, <laughs> oh, asking you can, for funds. You can choose Amazon smile. Uh, you can choose this for Amazon smile. So it'll donate. We're going to do another fundraiser uh, shortly for the conference in 2021. Awesome. And you can donate like an item for our raffle. I'm not sure if it's going to exactly be a raffle. It might be a little different format, but you can donate. Um, an item for that too. And just spreading the word. The biggest thing right now, the most important thing is making sure that patients facing mastectomy have this term aesthetic flat closure so that if if they do decide to go flat, they can take ownership, you know, and ensure that their provider understands exactly what they want. A smooth, flat chest with no extra skin at all and no dog ears. <laughs> You know, so I would, oh my gosh, I would also say and advocate for yourself, make sure that if you had a, um, a result that is not the result that you feel that was agreed to as with your flat closure to have that conversation and advocate and 
share the podcast, share the not putting on a shirt website. We'll have a link to that. Share your story because I know breast cancer, clearly since I'm a, a thriver, is not always the easiest topic. And you, Kim, had me in in tears. My eyes were getting a little leaky as you shared your story. But there's so much power in sharing that story because that is how we help lift each other and advocate together to get the treatments and the treatment options and the results that we deserve as a collective and having and sharing your voice. Kudos to you. I'm sorry it took taking your shirt off like apparently most things in America with women does (laughs) (laughs) to get the attention that you so deserved. And but, you know, it is so important that we do continue to do this for ourselves and for each other, for self-advocacy, for empowerment for ourselves and for others. For others, for others who maybe are not in a position to self-advocate the way that we are. That's the to me, that's the most critical thing. I am a young, otherwise healthy person. I can, I have family support. I can do this work and I can do it on behalf of those who can't stand out on the street with me because they're too sick or they can't make the trip. You know, there's just so many women who can't do the advocacy that you and I can do by virtue of our position. We, we have a moral imperative, at least that's how I see it for myself. Yeah advocate to be the voice for others who don't have a voice. I absolutely, absolutely agree with that. Yeah. So as we wrap up, the hard question I always leave everyone with is really just in closing, what message, what do you want to share with women who are listening, women and men who are listening, quite honestly, because we do have male breast cancer thrivers who also are listening. What would you want to leave with them? Just generally, if you've just been diagnosed, be your own advocate, period. You have, you have the power to make your voice heard however you need to. For me, it took taking my shirt off in Cleveland Clinic and getting dragged out by the cops. That's pretty extreme. You know, speak up. Speak up about what matters to you and make sure that you demand the treatment that you deserve. That decision you made is an absolute PR nightmare for that claim. I gave them every opportunity. I I gave them every opportunity to be on the right side of history for an entire year. You know, they try to paint me as, I mean, whatever they don't talk about. I'm not that important on their radar, but at the time it was, I was. Yeah. Oh yeah. They try to say, Kim is spreading misinformation, blah, blah, blah. You know what? Do the right thing. Do the right thing, even when it's not easy. That's what I'm doing. That's what we should teach our kids to be doing. And that's what we expect from our providers. I look forward to the ongoing change and changes that you bring to this area of care for all women who are going through breast cancer and making these decisions. And frankly, the tools and information that you have available are not only just absolutely critical and paramount for anyone who's considering their reconstructive options, because this is, this is not one that is routinely discussed in detail. But for anybody who's going through this and advocating for themselves, it's 
amazing the information you have. And so I, I highly recommend everyone head out to notputtingonashirt.org, check out the resources and the information. Where else can everybody find you, Kim? Uh, well, not putting on a shirt has an Instagram and a Twitter account that I've outsourced because I hate social media. <laughs> I'll just be brutally honest. Right. We're on, we're on Facebook. <laughs> Uh, that's about it right now. I mean, we're going to be, you know, attending professional conferences and stuff moving forward. The pandemic sort of put a little kibosh on some of that. Yeah. But you can look, um, yeah. And hopefully this October we'll be talking to some media outlets about aesthetic flat closure. That's on the, that's on the roster. That's awesome. You know what I'm, I'm hoping oddly is that with the pandemic and more people being home in some ways, more information is going to be consumed in this way because we are not as distracted with, um, working and commuting, right? I'm in the Seattle area. So commuting around here is terrible. I remember I five corridor bottleneck. I call 405 the world's most expensive parking lot. (laughs) It's just terrible. (laughs) The free, we call the freeways here in Pittsburgh, we call them parkways. Oh my gosh. Parkways. <laughs> it's really accurate when you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Anybody who's been through it. Oh my gosh. All right. So you're out on Instagram. We've got the website, you guys. Be sure to check it out. She has so much great information out here. Her strategic plan is out here. Um, she's got current projects that they're working on. And of course, you've got the ability to donate and participate and which is critically important and share your story, which is so powerful. So Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, website. Am I forgetting anything? Well, we have a couple of videos on YouTube, but it's pretty small. So <laughs> <laughs> well, you're about to have another. So for the, for the listeners today, I want to say, um, be sure and check us out on YouTube. This will be the first video. I think that we go live and you can actually see Kim this time because we've been getting, I am a newbie at this and getting stuff figured out. And so we've got a uh, video and I think it's just so important to be able to put eyes to people. And especially with a topic like this, which is so personal and so deep. So I want to thank you all for listening to another episode of Your Killer Life and looking forward to talking with you again next week. Kim, thank you so much for being on the show. So much for all the work that you do. So much for just being you and and just really rising like a phoenix through all of this and lifting everyone with you as you go. Thanks, Tammy. I appreciate it. You bet. All right, everybody, until next week, and be sure to click like and subscribe and all of that good stuff. I'm also clumsy with the social media, Kim. Be sure and do that so you don't miss an episode, you don't miss a a podcast. And until next time, keep building your killer life. Thank you for listening to Your Killer Life. And don't forget to subscribe. For more information about what you heard on today's show, visit us at yourkillerlife.com or visit our YouTube channel. You will also find us in all the usual places on social media. We have another great episode queued up for you next week. And until then, keep building your killer life.